And one of the things we said last week was that God has put you in specific places in order that you would find him. That God has put you in specific places. The time that you live in, the family you're in, the circumstances you find yourself in, the business that you're in and the economy that business is working in and that all of those circumstances that you're in are not something that happened while God was asleep at the wheel. As much as it sometimes might feel like that, right? Oh my goodness, Lord, you put me in here. Have you met my family? I've just been with them over Christmas. Like that was definitely a bad idea. Or God, have you seen my business? Oh my goodness, my business hasn't recognized the hand of God for ages. Um, That kind of idea. No, actually, Paul in that amazing preach to the Athenians uh, says, no, he's determined the boundaries and the places in which you would live so that with the express purpose that you would seek God and discover that actually he's close to you. And I want to explore that idea a little bit more today. That the stuff you're in right now, the place that you're planted in, the things you're facing, aren't some accident, aren't something to be coped with, aren't something to be changed, but actually are an opportunity for you to ask that amazing question, okay, God, how is this supposed to get me closer to you? That's the smart question to ask. In the suffering you face, in the struggle, in the challenge, in the opportunities, not what did I do to get myself into this? What's God going to do to get me out of this? No, no, no. Who can you be to me now, Father, that you couldn't be to me in some other circumstance? And we're going to just thrive and bite down hard on any of those opportunities this year. And we're going to look at some of those uh, today. So what we're going to do, I'm not going to do anything hugely uh, original or hugely intelligent. I'm going to tell you a few stories uh, about myself, about some other people. We're going to look at one very cool story about Jesus and his disciples. And then I'm really looking forward to getting back to that scripture which Gav read in the beginning, which I think is one of the most beautiful scriptures that describes who you are. Okay, that's the plan um, for the day. Now, um, You are in various groups and tribes, whether you recognize it or not. In fact, the groups that you're in become quite hard to recognize because they set what's normal for you. There's some stuff that that they prescribe as just a normal way to live, and because they're all living in the same way or speaking in the same way or choosing in the same way that you choose, they almost become invisible to us. And sometimes you have to be sort of jarred into noticing, oh, this tribe that I'm in is actually quite abnormal, or we have quite a specific normal that we're into that doesn't have to be that way. That's not the only way to live, right? If you're a runner, bless you, then you know about this, right? If there is any sport on earth that you could do by yourself, it's running. But runners have to clump together into little herds that speak about the wall and other stuff like that and and wake up early in the morning and and say other strange things to them. Um, And that whole tribe sets a bunch of normals that encourages runners to be the way they are. I used to uh, sneer at runners because I used to be a cyclist. Uh, I've been healed of that, Um, but I used to cycle, uh, and I was part of a subsection of cyclists who took themselves very seriously called road cyclists. And I was a subset of that subset that took their cue not from the archetype of evil Lance Armstrong, but from all the cool European guys who won less. Um, and, And we believed that if you wanted to please God and man, then the only kind of sock you could wear could be a white sock. In fact, the more white you could wear, the cooler you were. Which, if you think about the clothes that cyclists wear, white's not really the best choice um, for tight-fitting. Anyway, but, but you know, in pursuit of what that subset said was a good idea, uh, and there was no, not a leg hair to be found among us and all that sort of good stuff. Um, and that was, that was our normal, and, and the things you ate, and the stuff you spoke about, and the goals you were setting, and the things you told each other on Strava, and all of that was like what seemed normal to cyclists. And everyone else, 
I remember now how much of the time my parents had like a glazed look on their face. And it's not to make sense. Like that was abnormal. But because of the group I was in, it seemed normal. You may be in some other groups. In fact, even at a large scale, you think about certain things as being normal, which are actually not necessarily that way. You think a weekend is something normal. Half the planet doesn't even know what a weekend is. No one in China has ever heard of a weekend. But it's just like, well, the idea that we would go to DUC on the weekend and you know, the beach and all this sort of stuff is considered a normal thing. Um, now, that can work well or badly, right? Your family, your groups, your tribes that you're in um, can sometimes fulfill what 1 Corinthians 15 says is when good character is corrupted by bad company. Bad company corrupts good character. So you might know a little of that um, peer pressure experience that they can set a bad normal for you. They can also set great normals for you. The group that you find yourself in can push you to heights that you would otherwise not normally reach. When I was young, I was really fortunate. My folks, who run a little Anglican church in Durban North, um, ended up hosting Soul Survivor, which is a big movement of events and conferences that happen around the world for young people, and they introduce young people to Jesus, and the guy that runs it, Mike Pilavocci, is just amazing, great author, great preacher, go search him online. Uh, worship leaders like Matt Redman and Tim Hughes, and names you might have known uh, if you've been around church, came out of that. And as a youngster, our little church in Durban North would host these events where lots of young people would get to know Jesus and encounter the Holy Spirit and learn about faith. Uh, and they were really cool, really, I mean, 363 played its first gig at one of those events, and Delirious would come over from England and play there, and if you don't know any of these names, you're not part of my tribe. Um, <laughs> but, but if you do, then, you know, this is cool. And as a 14-year-old, I can just remember it was normal to be part of the prayer ministry team. You had a special lanyard with a different color on, which made you deeply cool and, um, and profoundly impressed with yourself. Uh, and at the end of the event, when the preach was finished and there'd be a bit more worship and then people would be called forward if they wanted prayer or to encounter God, it was totally normal to me that as a 14-year-old ricket, I would stand there praying for someone. And often, people who encounter a very, very powerful, very loving God that close, their bodies just can't cope with that. Uh, and so it's quite a common thing, both in Scripture and in my experience, that people, when they experience the love and power of God really closely, just kind of collapse and you know, almost faint. Uh, and that didn't seem weird. That now, as I describe it to you, might sound a bit strange, some kind of odd group thing, cult thing. Um, but in that moment, it was just like, we would chat about how if you get your hip in the right position, you can pivot them down, and they don't crack the skull on the chair. And, and like that. That just kind of seemed normal to me as a kid. And now you look back and that was an unusual community that I ended up being into. That was a special, quite a rare thing. Um, and I can remember it in Peter Marisburg when I was studying, uh, I was part of a group of young people who just took faith challenges really seriously. Just taking big risks for God was normal. Um, I remember a mate of mine had been saving up to get married, uh, and which meant he was saving up to buy a ring. And you all know that there is a direct correlation between the expense of the ring and the quality of the marriage. Right? I'm here to tell you that if you didn't know that before, and that explains a lot for some of you. Um, and uh, this mate of mine had saved up an inordinate fortune. I mean, for someone who drove a Fiat Uno, he had saved up like a whack of cash. And then, and then our church was wanting to do some new mission thing, and, and it was going to require a fair amount of money, and we were discussing if everyone was going to contribute and what in faith they wanted to give to that project. I suppose a bit like us now, are busy you know, contributing to a building project, and we're trying to hear God on a figure. And this young mate of mine uh, got the impression from God that the money he'd saved for this ring that he wanted to get engaged to his girlfriend with, that was the money he needed to give to the project. And he freaked out and was wrestling with it. But I suppose what's strange is that 
it didn't take very long for him to work out, well, of course I'm going to take this faith step. That's just what we all did. I remember quitting jobs because I felt God was calling me to somewhere else, and that was just normal. And as a result, we'd see all this miraculous, cool stuff happen, and this friend of mine had a a rich uncle who passed away, but not in Nigeria, so it was helpful, um, in Wales. And so he ended up with some cash, and he was able to get married, and the ring was suitably expensive that he seemed impressive to his fiancée. Uh, and that just seemed normal. Later on, I'll stop boring you with stories in a moment, but when I was down in Durban, I'd moved here for postgrad, uh, and I was at a church called Glenridge in Durban. And I don't know if there is a more selfish time of your life than if you're a bloke in your 20s without a job yet or a person of significance in your life. Like, you are just so deeply selfish, it's like eye-watering. Um, but I remember at that time that we, as a bunch of young guys, heard that there was a family whose child was sick, and they'd asked the church to pray. And I remember we just got together one Saturday morning, beautiful beach day, and spent three hours as a bunch of guys just praying for this kid, like interceding for the kid. And I don't even know if I'm that selfless now, but like at that time, in that community, that was just what we did. We spent all night trying to hear God about prophetic words for things. I know of other people who, in their communities, they meet at Life Group, and instead of discussing ideas or giving each other sympathy for how the week's gone, they get together, start praying, uh, and each one of them is trying to hear a word from God for someone um, that's not in the room. So they try to get some sense of a picture or a scripture or an encouragement or something that they think God is saying for someone. And then they go out in the evening to go and find people that they think that word might be for. So instead of going bowling, like you and I would do, they go out and they look, hi, sorry, you don't know me. I think God has a message for you. I was praying about you earlier. And yeah, I know that sounds weird. We've not met, but I think God wants to tell you X, Y. And like nine times out of ten, it's a smash hit, and it's so exciting and so fun to be part of. That can be positive peer pressure. That can be what communities can do for one another. That's how a tribe can set a normal that is really helpful. Because essentially what we're talking about is living by a different standard of normal. That you and I are part of a kingdom that has a whole different culture to it. And don't make the mistake of thinking that this is just you and I that this helps. Jesus, even though he was Jesus decided to create a little tribe like that, a little culture that would encourage and challenge and so on. And it's fascinating who he put in it. Think about it. He's put Peter in there, who's an instinctive, thoughtless, kind of reactionary dude. He tends to do stuff before he's spoken and speak still before he's thought. And um, then he's got Thomas, the doubter, and he's got Judas, who's greedy, and the other Judas, who's so lazy he hasn't noticed that he needs to do something different to get a different um, brand out there because everyone in the Bible only knows about the one Judas, so there were two, surprisingly. Uh, there's James and John, who were ladder climbers and who had an irritating mom. And that's a bit of a deal-breaker for me, particularly if, um, if you're the coach of primary school sport. You know that if there is a kid with an ambitious mom, don't pick them for the team. Your life will be painful if you've got her on the sideline. And yet those guys ended up in the team. There's a Simon who's a zealot, which means he didn't believe in paying taxes and wanted to overthrow the government. You could also just insert South African uh, there. And, uh, and then not only do you have Simon the zealot, but you also have Matthew, who is a tax collector. So you've got a zealot who hates tax collectors and wants to overthrow the government. And then you've got Matthew, who is a tax collector and has cozied up to the government. And God, and God goes and puts them all in the same group, as if to say... How difficult could we make this and still prove that community is possible and that a team can set a new normal of faith? And Jesus, why does Jesus do this? Why is the first thing that Jesus does when he starts his public ministry is to go and make some mates? And you will miss the point if you think that Jesus was just, in a dispassionate way, living out an object lesson. 
for us to learn from later. Of course he was setting an example, but Jesus was flesh and blood with needs and fears, just like you and I. And he knew that he couldn't live out a life of radical faith without a community who was going to encourage him. If Jesus didn't think he could pull it off without a group of mates, why do you think you can? And if you need proof of this, I've always been struck by the Garden of Gethsemane in the moments leading up to Jesus' arrest. And we'll reflect on this more deeply in Easter a few months' time. But I've always found it weird that Jesus wants them to pray with him. Do you remember this moment in the story? He goes to the garden. He knows what's coming. He knows he's going to be arrested and tortured and put to death. And he's begging this group of mates of his, please stay up and pray with me. And he begs them. And he's bent out of shape when they don't. It grieves him when they don't. And I've often wondered why that was. Like, you're Jesus. You, and you're with the Father. Like, what do you need this lot for? What difference could they really have made anyway to you? And he kind of knows what's going to happen anyway. So why is it so important to Jesus that his community stands with him? I think there are relational, psychological reasons. I think Jesus longed to have a community of faith around him at his most difficult moment, just like you and I need a community of faith around us if we're going to get through our most difficult moments and choose faith instead of bottling it. So if Jesus, despite perfect relationship with the Father, despite perfect clarity on his identity, despite perfect access to the Holy Spirit, despite being the most mature Christian on earth, still felt he needed a community of faith around him to make him brave, to encourage him, to work together with them. If he felt that was important to doing life, why do we think we can do without? Or what we do is we think, no, no, I'm fine. This preach is going to be great for so-and-so, but I've got a community. But if you look at them, they are homogenous. They're just like you. And most of what we talk about in our communities is outside of our control and outside of what we're called to. So we discuss the fires in Australia or we discuss, discuss the latest thing that came out of Donald Trump's head or we discuss this sort of state of the nation which is not actually your concern, if I can put it so bluntly. Like, whatever, be interested. But the stuff that my community of faith needs to be talking to me about is the stuff I can control, the stuff I am called to engage in, the stuff that I am wrestling with that I'm actually going to do something about instead of discussing ideas or things out there that you end up just interpreting, but you can't control them. And so we often end up feeling quite disempowered and uninspired. And we do that to each other loads, don't we? Not just with external stuff. There's stuff inside me that I should be taking ownership of, that I should be applying faith to, my hurts, my wounds, when I've been disappointed, when I've let myself down. And I have, have a default towards putting a community around me that offers sympathy and understanding. Instead of saying, well, what are you going to do about that? What's God going to do about that? What are you called to? What does faith say instead of fear? That kind of community that can call you to something higher, something greater, to grabbing the thing that you're called to live out. And we don't even know how to have those conversations. In fact, it probably sounds awkward to even imagine having those conversations. So we're used to, well, let's just discuss ideas out there or happenings out there that I don't have responsibility over. Jesus built a different kind of community. And all the people that have done great stuff, Paul needed Timothy and Barnabas. Peter needed James and John. King David needed his mighty men, who each one of them was far more impressive than him. Edmund Hillary, whose picture and his crew will be behind me shortly, climbed Everest for the first time. People still die trying to do that today, and he did it without proper oxygen or anything. And he had a team of 400 around him, 30-odd Sherpas, each one of them an incredible mountaineer in his own right. Roald Amundsen, who was the first person to the South Pole, had an Olympic skiing champion on his team and an Olympic dog sled champion on his team and a sailor who'd been sailing the South Seas since he was 16. And that was his crew, each one of them a more impressive hero than him. 
Now, Roald Amundsen is the first one to get to the South Pole, but we know about Ernest Shackleton because when Brits do things, they like to fail gloriously. And Shackleton failed gloriously. But this is the advert he put up in the paper when he was trying to recruit people for his team. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. Apply for Burlington Street. <laughs> the kind of people who answer that kind of ad are not the kind of people who are replying beneath, neat appearing young men for pleasing, or with pleasing personality, or whatever that was supposed to be for. No. He was recruiting nuggety, hardened, faithful, courageous men and women to go with him, which is why not a single one of them pegged out even when their ship sank in the south. If I'm going to achieve anything glorious with my life, if I'm going to consistently choose faith instead of fear, if I'm going to face my garden of Gethsemane moments and move into the things God has for me, I need a community around me of people who inspire me and challenge me and annoy me because they love God in ways that makes me feel a little bit insecure. That kind of community is what's going to get us over the line. If Jesus thought he needed one, why do we think we don't? I want to tell you one of the classic stories of Jesus and his cronies um, and how Jesus was trying to mold this idea of being a courageous community into them. It comes out of Matthew 14, uh, from verse 22. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. What's the context? Always good to ask. I'm glad you did. Uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000. You might be familiar with that story. 5,000 men were numbered, so probably 10,000 people. 10,000 people. And Jesus has just fed them out of some boy's lunchbox. What you might not know about that story, though, I think in some ways almost the bigger miracle of that story, is that it had happened just after Jesus had heard that John the Baptist, his good friend and cousin, had been murdered by Herod in a stupid show-offy moment with his new daughter-in-law. And Jesus is heartbroken. Jesus is feeling grief. If you needed proof that Jesus wasn't just sliding through life, giving us some sort of HD object lesson and how to do spirituality without actually experiencing the needs and pains of life, then you have your answer here. Jesus needs to go and grieve. Jesus hears that John the Baptist has died and his heart is ripped out of him. If you've experienced tragedy, you'll know how fragile your personal resources are in a moment of tragedy. I think that's a helpful way to say it. You're like, let me just cling on to whatever little bit I've got to try and get me through this moment. I'm just going to need to go and be in my own little personal wilderness talk to God, maybe one or two people that I know and trust, and, and see if the little bit of joy and the little bit of hope that I still have left in the circumstance, I can just about survive off that while I cope with this tragedy. And that's, what, that's where Jesus is at. So immediately he says, okay, I'm going to go and withdraw to be by myself and be with my father and cope with this loss. And he goes off into a remote area, and the insensitive crowd finds him anyway. And he comes out to him in that extreme moment and says, hey, teach us, entertain us, tell us something cool, heal our sick. And the incredible miracle for me is that by relying on the Holy Spirit, Jesus is able to, in the midst of that grief, turn and bless them for a whole day and serve them and be with them and engage with them. And we shouldn't just assume Jesus was an extrovert. There's nothing particularly holy about being an extrovert. There's no reason to assume that Jesus was just energized by crowds. He could be just as much of a fragile introvert as you or me. And in that moment of extreme grief, he models to his disciples that what's normal here is that when there's a need, we can rely on the Holy Spirit enough to actually give. 
I'm blown away by that. I'm so encouraged by that. That that is, if it was available to Jesus, that means that that kind of strengthening is available to you or I. So he spends the day blessing on the crowd, preaching to them, sharing his life with them. He feeds them all. And then at the end of that, he still needs to go and attend to his personal world and needs to go and grieve with his father. And so he packs the disciples off on a boat and sends them uh, to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. From verse 23, after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because, because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's me. Jesus said to them, like he's been saying to every follower of his forever since, take courage, it is I. Take courage, it's me. Don't give in to fear. Don't be afraid. Peter then says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. What, a, what an answer. Okay, come. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were on the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Jesus just... Setting a new set of normals here, isn't he? Just a normal day in the life of Jesus. Experience tragedy, receive comfort from the Holy Spirit, are able to minister anyway, feed people who are hungry, then go and spend time with God, then walk on water and sort out a storm, and then call your people to faith, then go and heal the sick in another area. Then the next thing that happens is he goes and drives a demon out of a girl, and then goes and speaks to the Pharisees about what holy living really looks like. This is just normal. This is the new normal that Jesus is trying to encourage these guys towards. Isn't that incredible? This ragtag crew, he's going, there is a whole different way to live. Don't make cultural assumptions about Christianity. Don't assume that your life is normal for Christians. It's probably quite abnormal, probably quite subnormal. This kind of life is what Jesus is sort of suggesting is normal. This is what we do. We see sick people, we heal them. We see hungry people, we feed them. We see storms, we calm them. We see the effects of the evil one and and satanic stuff, and we just resist it in the power of God. We see sin in ourselves or others, and we just describe what holy life is. That's normal. It's inspiring. It's challenging. And I think it's incredible, if we look at the story, firstly, that Jesus sent them out knowing full well what would happen and spies them in danger and trouble and leaves them there for a while. And then chooses to rock up in a totally terrifying, unexpected form. Jesus, what are you doing? You're supposed to love us and be kind and be my big friend and boyfriend in the sky. What the blazes is this, right? Could it be that the storm you are in right now and the unexpected, scary arrival of some unknown interloper into the story is in fact Jesus arriving in your story? He turns up totally unexpected in a form that terrifies them. 
I'm really trying to get better at asking when I'm in some kind of strife or difficulty, whether it's external or internal difficulty, to ask that first question I said at the beginning, okay, God, what are you trying to be to me right now? Father, how is this supposed to draw me closer to you? And then the next question, what scary, slightly unfamiliar thing in this story is actually you? Not something to be ignored, not something to be judged, not something to be sent away. And let me not say something, potentially someone, someone scary, someone uncomfortable, someone unfamiliar, that is in fact you breaking into my story, about to calm the storm, about to turn this into an awesome adventure between father and son. But if I'm expecting things to be how they usually are, if I'm expecting things to conform to what I think is normal, if I'm expecting things to measure up to my preconceived ideas, I may very well miss you. It terrifies me how much I think we miss Jesus sneaking into our lives. Flip, but it's a ghost. Flip, but it's a person of whatever description that you wouldn't expect God to come and work through. Flip, but it's just serving on a Sunday. Flip, but it's just a life group. I know what those things are like. Flip, it's, just, it's just a praise and prayer evening or a Sunday morning or a, or a checkout person or someone whose theology I know to be slightly off. It couldn't possibly be you, Jesus. He lets them get into a scary situation and then turns up in an unfamiliar way and immediately challenges them, don't be afraid, it's me. That any time I see fear starting to bubble away inside myself, I can be certain that God wants to declare war on it. That you are not supposed to leave fear undealt with in your life. You are not designed to be a fearful person. Oh, I'm just an anxious person. It's just my personality. Be free from that way of thinking. It doesn't make what you're struggling with any less real, but the huge encouragement is that none of you are designed to have a spirit of fear. You've not been given a spirit of fear. You are not a timid person. That is not your identity. You are not an anxious person. That's not how you are designed to be. Any fear that's in your life may be crippling, may be huge, may be incredibly difficult to imagine not having, but your Father loves you so much that He's going to come and say, Don't be afraid. It's me. Let's deal with that fear. Let's work out where it's coming from. Let's work out what lie it's based on. Let's work out what practices are going to be required to unlearn it. But that fear isn't part of your future. And the first thing Jesus wants to do here is say, let's not make friends with fear. Let's not dress it up and call it wisdom. It's fear. And it's going to stop you having faith. And faith is what's going to unlock all the awesome adventures between father and son or father and daughter that are waiting. And then he says to Peter, hop on out the boat. This is just crazy, isn't it? Peter is the one human being, aside from Jesus, who's walked on water. Let's just focus on the positives here. Go, Peter. That was amazing. He actually got to walk on water. I wonder if it's slippery. I wonder, you know, like, what's that like? But he managed to walk on water. Now, here's the mechanics of why he did that. Because Peter is not that impressive a person. Certainly not at this point. Let's not deify him into some kind of sainted, well, we could never. What Peter understood... Firstly, that Jesus loves him. So when he says, okay, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you, he is putting huge trust in Jesus in that moment. He's saying, I trust that you love me enough that you won't hurt me, that you won't, in order to save face or make a point, tell me to jump out the boat even though I'm doomed to fail. That if Jesus thinks I can do this, then I think he's probably right. And then he understood, very importantly, the way that rabbis worked with their disciples in ancient Israel. This is a big deal. 
if you are lucky enough to be chosen by a rabbi, if a rabbi says, okay, I want you on my team, generally he picks the best of the best. So this motley crew, we're just lucky to be there. They're just stoked to be on the bench. Non-traveling reserve, that's as much as they were hoping for. Jesus goes, no, you're on my team. And he's not any rabbi. He's working miracles. He's embarrassing the Pharisees. He's calming storms. Let's not forget, they've seen him calm a storm before. Just a little fact for your context for the story. They've also just seen him feed 5,000 people. And the way he did that, by the way, is when the disciples came and said the people are hungry, he said, okay, well, you feed them. All of this is building to the point that if you were lucky enough to be chosen by a rabbi, your total expectation is that you existed to do what your rabbi did. Not to learn from him, not to go there and get a certificate to add to your CV. Our way of thinking about learning these days is very Western and Greek and different from theirs. They learned by emulation. There was a saying at that time that may the dust of your rabbi's sandals be upon your cloak, or something to that effect. Sounded good the way I said it. But the idea is that you would follow your rabbi so closely, go wherever he went, that the dust that he tramped up would stay in your clothing, that you'd follow him everywhere he went with the express assumption that if he does something, you can do something. So when Peter goes, well, you're my rabbi, you love me and want what's good for me, you are now introducing some new normal to my world that people can walk on water, apparently. Well, if you can do it, the whole assumption is that you've recruited me because you think I can do it. If you and God ever find yourself disagreeing about what you can do, he's always right, you're always wrong. It's probably worth saying again. If you and God find yourself disagreeing about what you are capable of doing, he is right 100% of the time, and you are misinformed. Because he's your rabbi, and he picked you, and he said, you're on my team because you're going to do the things I did. In fact, even greater things. And so if I say you can go and speak to that strange person, or pray out loud, or give away money, or choose to engage with this sick person and pray that they get healed, or whatever it is, or forgive that spouse of yours that's hurt you again, or go and share the gospel with your boss who you think might fire you, or anything, say no to that extra drink or that temptation, whatever it is that you think, ah, I'm just not, just not sure that I can really do this, and God goes, no, you can. He's right. You are wrong. Believe him. And that's what Peter does. He goes, okay, if you say I can walk on water, I guess I can. And Peter's right. He can walk on water. He does. Go Pete. He walked on water. And then at some point, he starts to notice Eskom and the blackout. And he starts to notice that Cyril has said a few things that actually aren't that exciting. And then he starts to hear about Trump. And then he starts to notice his bank balance again. And then he starts to remember the things he's done wrong in the past that probably mean he's not actually a spiritual athlete enough to really pull this off and notices the waves and notices the surroundings and takes his eyes off Jesus and you know what happens next. Except even that is fine. Let's get this right. Peter still walked on water. I don't care that he failed. He walked on water and the worst thing that's going to happen is you're going to get a bear hug from Jesus. That's the worst thing that can happen. Because in an instant, Jesus reaches out. And I'm quite interested in the mechanics of this. Because Peter, I don't know how close Peter had got to Jesus by the time he then freaked out and started to sink. But Jesus is on him in a flash and grabs this 80 kg man out of the water. And has anyone here tried to climb into a boat from the water? It is not a graceful thing. Like there's a lot of splashing and swearing and not in my case and other stuff. And you kind of tumble into the boat. And so Jesus is trying to wrestle Pete back into the boat. And it must have been hilarious actually. And at the end of this incredible moment, 
where Jesus has grabbed him, stopped him from sinking, bundled him back into the boat. He then decides, interestingly, to give him a public dressing down in front of his mates. You've so little faith, why did you doubt? Why is Jesus picking this bone with the one guy who did get out of the boat while the other guys can listen? Pete's done well, right? Either Jesus is just an unflinching perfectionist, or he's trying to change the normal. He's trying to say, and the rest of you lot, who didn't actually have the confidence that I picked you, that I've chosen you to be like me, who watched on the sidelines thinking I didn't love you enough, hadn't picked you for the right reasons, this is what's going to be normal now. You trust me. That's just what we do here. You rely on me. That's just what's normal for our team. You've seen me calm storms before. You've seen me feed thousands. You've seen me drive out demons. You've seen me do all this stuff. Let's do better at remembering the good things I've done for you, team. And let's do worse at remembering all the reasons why you think you might fail. Friends, let's do better at remembering all the reasons and all the ways that God has proved that he has your back, that he's for you, not against you, that he loves you, that he's chosen you on purpose. We have such short memories for the ways God has come through in the past. Radically short. I think we need to repeat the stories of God's hand in our lives to ourselves all the time so that when that moment comes, you go, yeah, but you saved me, you delivered me, you've chosen me, you've been kind to me before, you've never let me, actually, you've never let me down. You haven't. Whatever storms I've faced when I've reached for you, you were right there. It'll be the same this time. And instead of looking around at all the other stuff you can't control, because you can't, just look at him who called you. I really want us to be a church that starts to live that way. I just had this kind of light bulb go on, that it's easy to be a church that just offers services to the community, whatever those might be. And different churches are good at offering different services. Perhaps we just, you know, preach a good message. That we're just a messaging operation, actually. We're called to live with a totally different set of normals. What's supposed to come naturally to us looks so different. And you don't just get there in the blink of an eye. You put a team around you, a community around you, who's hungry for the same thing, who speaks the language of, well, what is God going to do about that? And what are you going to do about that empowered by him? That that's how we talk to one another. We don't sit around bandying ideas. Those are the worst kind of life groups. We've all been a little bit hurt. We've all been let down in some way. We come up with clever questions to ask and clever ideas to spout, and we use those as a defense about, against actually having to get intimate with Jesus and do the things he's called us to do. And I want to be part of a community that just goes, well, what are you going to do about that? What's God calling you to do about that? What's God going to do about that? That's where your life will change. And so this year... Let's not have the normal names down on the list for life groups. Let's have a few of you who those life groups desperately need in them because you're the zealot and they're a bunch of tax collectors because you have an annoying mom or whatever it is that qualifies you to be in there. He's chosen you to be there. Hey, stop kissing your wife as if that was for her. You, I saw you bad-mouthing your in-laws there. We, we speak the truth here, eh, bastard. Um, I wanted to read this last scripture before we end. I'm not sure if we're out of time, but I, I just found this such a beautiful description of what our church can be like, what any church can be like, what you, even if you're visiting here, even if you got here by accident and you were supposed to be playing golf, let's just assume God put you here on purpose. This is who you are, according to 1 Peter 2. My translation's less cool than Gav's, but you'll get the point. You are a chosen people. 
You're a chosen people. Not an accidental people, not a random people. You're not here by your own volition. You're chosen. A royal priesthood that you have lucked into somehow being part of the lineage of royalty. And not just any royalty, but a royalty that has a role in the presence of God. Your job is to lead people into the presence of God. That's what priests do. They mediate between God and man. You have such a special, unusual role that you could never have earned or qualified for. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. God owns a lot of stuff. There's supernovas that are his pet projects. There are mighty cliff faces that have been around since long before you that catch the sunlight in beautiful ways. There's stuff going on in the depths of the ocean that is just specially for God. And yet, compared to all that stuff, he thinks you are his special possession. You're the, the thing he has the least buyer's remorse about. You are his favorite asset. You're the one he saved up for, paid a crazy high price for, and treasures. You, not just as an individual, but as a motley crew, even more. You are a people who is God's special possession. And you are all these things so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Can you just turn to someone, preferably not the person you came with, and just tell them you have received mercy? And now while you have their attention, can you say, you are God's special possession? Come on, say it. Speak to someone. You've just prophesied truth over them. And they probably felt a bit awkward about it. We're not used to the idea that you are God's special possession, his chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You know, around the world, there are people worshiping Jesus right now with different flags in their passports. And some of them are having six-hour-long meetings in Nigeria, and some of them are having 40-minute meetings in New York City, and some of them are doing it with fancy robes on, and some of them are doing it in the back of a bar somewhere. And all of them are part of your nation. You have more in common with them than you have with your family. You're a holy people. You're a chosen royal priesthood. Just before this passage, Peter describes you as the living stones in God's temple. That knitted together, you create the place in which God can be encountered and worshipped. And that's not just a sweet bonus for everyone else. You will face Garden of Gethsemane moments where just like Jesus, you're going to need a community of courage, a band of faith, a tribe that chooses faith over fear to say, well, what are you going to do about that? What do you think God is going to do about that? What are you guys working together going to achieve in this moment? What is faith calling you to instead of fear? That kind of community is what we need. And everything else, every other WhatsApp group you're part of is less important than getting into one of those, I assure you. Let's pray. Lord, you have prepared in advance a tribe, a community, a a group of people for us to become connected to. And instead of praying that 
you make them really great, that you prepare them to bless us. I want to pray on behalf of everyone in this room that you would use us to bless that group when we get there. That you would use us to bring the word of the Lord, the witness of faith instead of fear. That you'd use us to bring truth where there's doubt and confusion. That you'd use us to bring strength and generosity where we find lack. That instead of hoping we find the perfect life group or the perfect group of friends who are going to be a value add to us, God, would you place us? Put us wherever you want us. And help us to create a new normal, a, a countercultural way of living in that community that causes, just like that first tribe of yours, us to change the world. Honestly, to change the world. Jesus, we're dreaming about that because you're our rabbi. And we want your dust on us. And if you said we can, then you must be right. Thank you so much, Jesus, for choosing us. Amen.